0: Here we are. Welcome to episode six with Gary A. Bowles. We're picking up the rock of learning, examining it, turning it around, spinning it all around, and trying to figure out the future path. We're joined by Gary A. Bowles off the back of a big tour here, down under and around on his latest book, The Future of Work. But today we've got him to talk about the future of learning and what that looks like. They intersect nicely, but we have taken a a perspective of learning and what that actually looks like. And how it's changing and Gary Abel's really pinpoints a similarity that I think many of us are aware of that education or learning is going through a bit of a media moment and a media moment being technology intersecting or interrupting or disrupting it and and changing the way that we consume, produce and and use education um, as a product and then also as a resource and then also as just a, as, as stepping stones for us to to really meet the task at hand and help solve sol- problems and give solutions, so that's where we are and, and what that means. So we go into that landscape, sort of looking around. What are the what are the plays? What are the challenges? What are the what are the opportunities? And um, yeah, it's a riveting conversation for anyone looking to. To sort of produce education or produce learnings and and also provide value to their staff and and enable them to to be the best they can be into the future so hope you enjoy it dive in welcome gary
1: no i appreciate the invitation patrick looking forward to the conversation
0: um i was hoping we could start straight off the bat you've got an uh sort of Great experience in, in education, great experience, and even in journalism. But like, I was hoping to get your definition of what education is.
1: So um, I, I tend to uh, sometimes be called, uh, be, be accused of being the word police. And I use, I use different words often, not because I'm trying to get other people to use my language, but to make sure we're just sort of, you know, uh, thinking about the ramifications of the labels that we've used. And so um, I, often, I think traditionally, we, we've we, education has had sort of two contexts. We talk about an education as a noun, and we think of that uh, as the result of having gone through some formalized learning process, typically at the early stage of our lives. And, uh, and we package all that up, and we call that school, uh, and we call that college. And we we lump it all together, and then we call that an education. And we've typically had the language and the, the mindset, especially in Western um, societies, to to think of an education as an asset that then can be amortized through a big chunk of work. And I'll explain that framing. But uh, so that's one that's one context is where where often it's it's talked about as uh, as a, as a noun, and uh, it's sort of a box of of information uh, and hopefully skills that we've gathered, uh, you know, in the first say qu- quarter of our lives, and then then hopefully applicable later on. And the other context for education is uh, is simply the process of learning is just continually learning is is uh, whether that's uh, ad hoc and accidental or whether it's intentional and planned, uh, and whether that is. Structured or unstructured, it's a process of how we continually can learn, and so so I tend to focus a lot on the second part, and I, I use the word learning, and uh, and then education. I tend to reserve talking about the traditional uh, ecosystem mm-hmm. of uh, the the you know the approaches we've used in the past, yeah. um, and and I want to contrast though is because when people say, well, how can we change education? They say, well. We're talking about changing two different things. We're talking about changing these institutions, uh, which we often call schools and colleges. And we're talking about changing a process, mm-hmm. which is really learning. And, and those are actually two different things. Yeah. So, so it's important to, to you know to, for people just to step back and say, OK, I, I, I get it. Um, I, I either want to focus on how institutions can change or I want to focus on what each of us as individuals and especially what organizations can do in the context of, of
0: lifelong learning. Mm. And I think we're at an interesting cross-section where some of them are a little bit entwined, so it's really handy to have that key definition um, laid out at the start. Now, um, you started a newspaper famously chronicling the demise of the transition from analogue media to digital and was famously called the internet's first newspaper, which witnessed you know, the industry changing and really, as I said, the demise of. So I really wanted to know what can... What can education, and I'm using this as a broad term, or yeah, like yeah. both sides, what can learning and then what can <sighs> traditional education learn from here um at a societal level and um, and maybe yeah from what's happened for media and to stop what you've termed the Amaz- Amazon fication of of uh of media?
1: Yeah. So um, the reason we started Interactive Week back in 1994, uh, even before the, the World Wide Web protocols were were widely released, is because uh, I've been in technology, um, literally in Silicon Valley since uh, the early 1980s, and we'd seen sort of wave after wave of technology, and, uh, and I sort of almost fell into the, the journalism business. And the reason we started Interactive Week was because we saw this sea change coming, and... We didn't know what the speed uh, or the scale was going to be. We just knew that over time it was going to have a really, really significant impact. Um, And media was going to be the canary in the coal mine because um, if you think of it uh, in two different contexts, you think of it as an industry and you think of it as uh, essentially a a human need, you know, as an industry, uh, it turns out that it was the most susceptible to the internet because uh, it was basically, it still is a business built on attention. The more uh, time you spend giving your attention to media, the more the people that produce it typically are able to make money. Um, but there's 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 a human need to gather information, and we believed that that the the way that those needs were going to be met was going to transform. So now we can take the need for information. We say uh, instead for learning. And now we can look at the, the impacts on, on education. And so, it, the, the, again, back to our, our original construct, there's the industry of education. And uh, back in, in 2010, uh, my wife and I, who's our managing partner, we uh, were co-producers for an event um, uh, on, on unbundling higher education. And then I've written a series of articles, including one on Medium called Unbundling Higher Education And and I've talked about how as as an industry, I believe that the whole, the the formal traditional education um, system is changing and it's changing in reverse. It's changing much more in organizations in the way organizations are approaching learning. And it's much, much harder to change, especially sort of K-12 institutions. What we can take away is that the human need to continually learn, to continually gather information um, is is lifelong and, uh, and the way that we learn, the context in which we learn, it turns out that there's a bunch of you know, the really good neuroscience and really good studies to talk about the most effective ways that each of us can learn. So what we learned from an industry standpoint is that eventually um, media became unbundled. That is the idea that you needed to hold a magazine or a newspaper in your hand and flip through a series of pages Turns out to have been simply one way to, you know, what we call a transport mechanism. That's one way to get that information to you. But there's lots of other ways to get that information to you, including websites and apps and that sort of thing. It's the same thing with learning. Um, there's lots of other, there's a variety of different ways in which you can learn contexts. You can do it individually, you can do it as a team sport, you can do it using digital tools, you can use analog tools, you can do it intentionally, you can do it accidentally. There's all sorts of different ways to be able to learn. And where we are is at the same sea change where the business part of it is starting to unbundle. That is, it's eroding. And especially colleges, they're sort of the canary in the coal mine for a lot of this. Uh, and then the processes that we're learning, the ways that humans can learn, that is also changing very dramatically. And it's accelerating in the same way it did with media.
0: Mm. And so what can we learn, I suppose, from the pitfalls that now we see where media is now for better or worse? And and I suppose that amazonification I can't say it quite yet, is in terms of just Creating major whales that control a lot of the way that we do learn. This is the way we consume media now. That's sort of the parallel. So, what are the pitfalls that we could learn of the way we will consume education in the future?
1: So, so there's there's um, there's pitfalls and there's there's um, opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> so perfect. The pit, the pitfalls to avoid are uh, again with the institutions. What Amazonification means is that um, the result of the unbundling of media is that power ended up in just a a small number of hands because uh, there are these mechanics called um, network effects and increasing returns that essentially sort of work together that mean that if you have all the buyers, all the sellers come and if you have all the sellers, all the buyers come and your cost of production is zero. Then uh, it, you're, what, what is rewarded is only a few winners. You get one Amazon, one Facebook, one Google, you know, one Meta. Um, uh, you, you you don't get a lot of winners. You only usually get one or two. Yeah. And uh, and so that's the thing to worry about on the institutional side, on the business side of learning and education, is that all of it would rebundle into a platform, a learning platform, and there'd be only one of them. And we would all have to learn through that platform and everybody else would have to put their content on that platform. And that doesn't exist yet. There's no, there's no for for a variety of reasons, but there's nothing like that quite yet. There's a lot of attempts to do that. Um, What we can also learn are the advantages. And the advantages are the more innovation that you can have, the more you unbundle, the more alternatives you bring, the more the potential for very innovative solutions. And as long as those continue to thrive as individual businesses, individual services, and the bundling of them is essentially, you know, a process that we're in control of, then everybody wins. That 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 would be a wonderful outcome for what the future of learning could be.
0: Mm. And and what are your thoughts on how you get there? Uh, And who are the players that would need to, you know, um, shepherd that into place?
1: So the the key to all of this is what each of us does as an individual, the choices that we make. We don't have to buy from Amazon. We can buy from hundreds, thousands of other online sellers. But uh, our brains have been hacked by the algorithms that make things easy for us and that that balance pricing and availability and all that sort of stuff. And then we become familiar with it and we just tend to default to it over and over again. And imagine the same sort of thing when we go to learn. Um, There could be that same sort of platform. So what we do with our attention, what we do with the things we pay for, so long as we continue to pay for a diverse set of sources, so long as we don't just default to brand names and what we think of as you know, the highest quality because it's got a very well known name. And we instead are using the ways that we hopefully learn from each other, social signals, um, ratings, uh, paying for content as opposed to wanting everything to be free. So long as we do all those things where we're looking at diverse sources, then we can keep this a very healthy ecosystem. But if we all default to just one or two platforms, then we we get the huge benefit in that it, it'll be cheap and there'll be a lot of content. And what we lose is diversity.
0: Hmm. It's always the trade-off, isn't it? It's uh, you can really see that playing out and <laughs> and yeah. and history repeating itself and, and a bit of a circle um, going through different industries as tech runs its way runs its race. Um, yeah. I suppose, where do you think now with the barriers to knowledge being so low, where is knowledge truly being produced? Like it never has been. That's really where we are now.
1: Yeah. So a lot of it depends upon, I, again, you're going to accuse me of being the word police, but yeah. what we mean by knowledge. All right. So so when we learn, um, when we, we gather information, there's, there's you know, a lot of different ways of thinking about sort of the spectrum. Of information from you know pure data to data that's useful that's often called information uh, to uh, knowledge that's often called information that is uh, made relevant um, mm-hmm. and applicable and to wisdom and that's often thought of as knowledge that are sort of breakthrough insights that can um, help to be transformative. And so if you think of that as sort of a spectrum, well, information is getting created (laughs) automatically uh, from a a limitless number of sources. The, The sheer amount of the volume of information that we create every day, every year, is far greater than the volume of information 10 years ago. So if you keep following that exponential curve, we'll continue to have this overwhelming uh, amount of of information. And and you can say, well, then some percentage of that should be knowledge, it should be applicable, and some percentage of that should be wisdom. This should be very highly useful to us and relevant and and breakthrough insights. Um, So where that comes from can be a wide variety of different sources. The challenge and opportunity is, how does it get to us? Hmm. How do we sift through it? And so right now, we've shown a number of biases. We're biased towards uh, brand names. So one of the reasons there is an Amazon in the first place is we were biased to go get a lot of books through this new thing called Amazon. That's how they started. Um, it's still a massively dominant force in the knowledge that comes through you know, print and, and uh, digital books. Uh, we, we could be the, get, get, getting it through social signals. So that's what an awful lot of the social networks provide nowadays is pointing us to new insights and information and sometimes it's a one liner that will turn and show to our significant other and other times it's pointers to a you know really, really deep uh, series of uh, books or art- articles or videos or anything that we feel we can learn from. And so I, I think the, the, the answer is it's gonna come, it's gonna continue to come from an increasing number of sources. And then how do we filter that? Like, how do we find what is the most relevant, useful, valuable, and I hope we care accurate information that we can apply in our lives? And what, again, history shows us is that all those pieces are going to work together and that eventually we will have better filters. Um, And so there's a lot of people who champion, for instance, the idea that we're all going to have an artificial intelligence coach. Um, It's going to be an app that we will have trained, it'll know what we like, it'll know what we're interested in, we'll decide, do we want it to go find really random things that just could interest us and fascinate us, or do we want it to only find things that are absolutely targeted and totally relevant to our work and to our lives, or all the above. Hmm. That will be one way to filter that information. We'll, we'll continue to look to each other. We'll continue to look at brand names. And, and increasingly, we'll look to ways that, that's, that that information gets packaged in what are often called learning paths so that we can feel that there is some outcome of what we're learning. And then there's something, some reward we get, whether that's a certificate or you know, a badge or something else that we can point to and say, we've learned this body of information or this new skill.
0: Mm. yeah that's interesting to hear you say that and yeah the the ai hound of the of the digital world going out and sniffing out the right information is is, is a unique concept that you can see um would have more than four legs to do that yeah i really want to get your perspective on what role businesses have to play i went to a school that uh the a steiner school a stream of steiner and only once finishing graduating did I realize that this, like philosophy, this school, come from a cigarette factory um, owner employing someone to develop an educational model. And this was in the Industrial Revolution when more uh, when more people needed to be in the factory working. And the, you'd think the the education is completely different to what we now um, associate with cigarettes, but it's had lasting impact. Now I'm wondering what sort of space you see. And that's why I sort of did that prelude question of where knowledge is produced because when we're looking at the way different people are being employed, we're looking at how AI, like fringe skills and fringe knowledge is really existing now with sort of the the breakouts, the people who are really testing the boundary on the fringe. And that's where I feel like new knowledge is, is really coming from and that's where a lot of people are trying to gravitate to. But how to get that information is really hard often. Um, and do you see a role for... For organizations at the moment, they partner up a lot with with institutions to sort of have a feed in approach to legacy edge le- legacy education providers. But do you see a role where they start to do a lot more of the education themselves in terms of vetting, in terms of introducing and then also brand awareness and and finding top talent?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to hit a couple of points because you've covered covered a broad landscape there. And there's so many things I want to to talk about, but I'll just hit hit some of the bullet points. So the uh, organizations, employers, businesses um, have several different roles to play. The first is that they send market signals. Right. So you can think of. Traditional college and universities, um, and by the way, I don't have enough college myself to stuff into a thimble. So you can decide whether that gives me zero moral authority to talk about higher education or complete moral authority. Uh, but, but sorry, that was
0: you <laughs> didn't go to college. Is that what you're saying?
1: Didn't go to college. Yeah, never interested. Yeah, yeah. took some courses here and there. Not not interested. Yeah. Um, and uh, no, I just jumped into this thing called work, and so they'll uh, <laughs> barely, barely escaped high school. <laughs> so, uh, so the the uh, employer, the the, the business, um, you can think of as having a role in sending market signals. So, what when you if you were running a college, who's your customer? Your near term customer is uh, a parent. They may be paying. It might be a government that's backing a student loan. It might be a foundation that is providing some support. Oh, oh, and by the way, the student. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> you think of the student as a customer as well. Um, in the United States, uh, there's 1.7 trillion dollars of student debt sitting on the shoulders of that customer, the student. Uh, but they're the near-term. Think of them as the as the upstream customers, and then the downstream customer is the employer, because in many cases, not in all, but in many cases the belief by the student, the near-term customer, the upstream customer, is that they're going to make this investment in this thing called an education. And then the way they're going to amortize it is that future employers will want to hire them for it. Now, that's not true for all students and it's not true for all employers, but the employer sends those market signals. And as long as they look for that degree or basically that, that risk management factor that we call a degree, um, then, then they they that's one role they have. Now, IBM, for instance, has announced that 50% of all of its open roles no longer require a college degree. So, that, so employers have control. They can make decisions about what the you know this this um, traditional approach uh, to bundling together knowledge and and you know putting the label on it of a degree, whether or not that's still the way they want to resolve risk, because that's really all that hiring is. Hiring is just the risk management process so so that's the first role that they have the second role that they have is is once they've hired then what is it that they do to help that human being to continually have the knowledge and the skills and the ability to be able to solve the problems of today and the problems of tomorrow and different employers have had different uh, mindsets and different eras have had uh, sort of different trends And there was a really strong belief up until around the 1970s and 1980s that employers needed to continually invest in training and continuous development. And then it sort of went out of fashion because employers started to believe that if they would train people, then they would leave. And uh, my mantra nowadays is that it's exactly the opposite. If you don't train them, they will leave. Um, So instead we all need to pay it forward. And so this process of helping people to continue to learn is the second uh, role and responsibility of the employer. And the the third responsibility is to be thinking about how the resources that the business and the employer continually leverage, like the the ways that they get access to the information, the knowledge, the courses, um, the learning processes that their workers can use, as much as possible to make that information much more widely available in the wild. That is to have people who didn't require, didn't have access to a lot of those um, learning resources before now have access to them. And so you'll see lots and lots of headlines from Amazon, from Google, from, from a range of different employers that have had a really hard time hiring enough people Putting a whole bunch of their learning resources out into the wild and letting just anybody learn learn from them, and I think that is going to increase dramatically. And uh, because more and more employers are going to realize if we want to have the trained workers that we need tomorrow, we're going to have to put we have to pay for it. Forward. We're going to put more and more of those resources available to to anybody, and that can have much more positive impact and and, 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 and uh, encourage much more diversity. Because people who wouldn't have had the resources to get a standard college degree or take you know, all the time to get trained in an industry will have more uh, resources available to them.
0: Mm. And and that is something that you're really seeing. And I feel like it is is a standpoint for disruptors or different places to really lean into um, and and start producing some, yeah, what I see is that fringe knowledge and uh, more people get to understand and and play with that. And as you say, new perspective. Yeah. So.
1: Which is also for one form. We talk about fringe knowledge. So I, I think it's I think it's a great perspective, which is that um, I think a fringe knowledge essentially is not being the traditional places that we would look or traditional sources, but instead we're looking at innovators. We're looking at people that are coming at it from different angles. What we're seeing is a uh, really significant trend towards uh, what we call knowledge intersections. So, and the example that I use is um, let's say that you've got a young person. And they're at that young adult launchpad period where they're thinking of maybe going to college or maybe going into work or going to vocational school. They've got a range of options and they're fascinated by engineering. They're fascinated by agriculture and they're fascinated by space. And what would a traditional approach be? Well, you'd go get a four year engineering degree and then you go get a four year ag degree and then you oh well, not many people do space. So you. So you're kind of out of luck, but um, the John Deere, the the tractor company, has recently a tractor that is autonomous. It runs on its own, and it's guided by satellites in space. And, and as it's going around different fields, you know, and and uh, mowing and and uh, and seeding. And so, so think of every, every uh, John Deere wants every single person that that loves that intersection. And in the past the traditional silos of the way we mm. think of an education, a, co- a college would tell you, I'm sorry, you can't do that. That we, we are not designed to be able to let you leverage the passion for those intersections. So if you think of each of them as a friend, putting them together actually creates huge value for the future because you're going to develop this very rare, rare skill set. Uh, and, and as increasingly as we're seeing more and more technology is infusing so much of work, the more passionate you are about those intersections, the more potential you have to go find unique work.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's well said. And that is what's so exciting. The glass half full of what's to come is, is those intersections and that ability to sort of break down some of the walls that have existed in terms of accessing accessing knowledge. Um, your dad, I learned not long ago, wrote a book uh, the color, what color is your parachute? Am I not, am I right? And in it is that piece of advice that says, you know, and it's that ability to change or reframe a situation, like, and, and unbox yourself from how you may have previously perceived yourself or a situation. Um, I would like to hear, this is a question that we often ask I guess, is like, how have you used that framework in, in your life and when has it been significant either personally or professionally?
1: So thank you first off for recognizing my father's work. So, um, so parachute uh, was written literally 50 years ago, and uh, my father updated it every year for 42 years, and um, he passed away five years ago. But he left behind an amazing legacy. It's you know it's the world's career manual, 10 million copies in print, 17 languages, and uh, he was a recovering minister who um, just ended up finding ways to be able to help people who wanted to go through career change. Um, think about the next phase of their lives. And so um, so I, and I've learned countless things from his work and what I, what I think is, is especially empowering is that his, so much of his focus was in trying to help people not to boil to their own personal ocean, that is to think through their career, like everything they will be doing for the rest of their lives, you know, and, and especially that's the message we give young people at that young adult launchpad period when they're 17 or 18, that they have to make these decisions that are gonna have these huge ramifications for decades to come. And one of the things that my father did that I thought I was really helpful to people and that I found very helpful is to dial down the the pressure and importance of these huge massive career decisions and instead to focus on what's next. Um, That's the reason my book is called The Next Rules of Work is it's not what the future of work will be in 50 years, although I do talk about ideas for that. But the the real premise, most people, when they talk about the future of work, what they care about is tomorrow. That's the future they're really thinking about. And so I try to help people to be continually thinking about what are the tools I need to be able to focus on what's next. Um, in in, in my, my book, I break it down into mindset, skill set and tool set, uh, but, but essentially what, what I, when I try to help people as individuals organizations, when I spend time with people who lead in communities, or when I sit down with ministers of labor and ministers of education in, in countries from Brazil to Tunisia, they're all asking the same thing. What do we need to do next? <laughs> And, uh, and so I think that's a really powerful construct for people because it gives them much more of uh, the sense of relief, I think, that they don't have to solve for everything for the rest of their working lives. Um, but it also helps them to be able to be more forward thinking and to be thinking about not just you know the, the steps I need to, to go through today, but how do I actually make sure that I'm going to have the future that I want?
0: Mm. Yeah, I was listening to a conversation that you said, and you said it really well. And I think the future of work it's uh and what's next is an interesting one and how you've titled that book is is a resource for for a lot of people to ask that itching question what is coming next and um when when that when your father's book came through and and how you explained it was was really fascinating just around that reframing and, and understanding yourself not necessarily being defined by a job title, but more as a problem solver and what that looks like. And you were sort of touching on those those moments of, you know, what are the skills of the future, but also what are the skills you have as as an individual, not as necessarily defined to that role and sort of changing the way you're looking uh, literally just moving the head from east to west is is an interesting concept um, yeah. and, and a really valuable one as we do move into into new times. I want to get your perspective. Before we let you go, around sort of what what are the skills that are really needed f- for young people in your in your understanding? Like going into school, like because education, typically state-sponsored education or private education for young kids is is right for changing or, or is it not? But the skills that we need as we enter into tomorrow's workforce is is obviously going to be markedly changed. I have two daughters and I'm looking at the sort of the sands of time trying to read them and, and understand what's what's coming. And I'm like, well, I feel like the industry is going to be so different. So we need curious learners and we need we need to instill confidence and we need to instill ability to ask questions and seek seek you know a truth, whatever that may look like, and then be able to provide value to themselves and the community around them. But how do you how do you see that playing out and how do you see that being taught? You know, education for young people.
1: Yeah. So um, th- there's we use a lot of words that that have a variety of different meanings. Yeah, your alarm bells is, are just going. <laughs> well, no, no, it's 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 more it's more I just want to make sure sure I'm I'm being uh, as complete as possible in as short a time as possible. Yeah, so, I appreciate it. So so skills. So so um, my my framing for skills are how we channel our human energy. To solve problems Mm -hmm. and and so and that that can be a skill where you're just thinking it can be a skill where you use your hands there's there's a lot of different ways we channel our human energy and uh, and there's research going back literally to the 1950s. It sort of separates skills into two bins there's the skills that are uh, very rooted in a knowledge base. Um, and I call these no skills, K-N-O-W skills, like, you know, the bodies of information, like like engineering or, you know, car repair. And then there's another set of skills which are very flexible skills, usable in a wide range of situations. And I call those flex skills. And that's you, you said your curiosity, um, learning how to learn, um, uh, developing confidence. You know, these are all skills that holds you in good stead in a range of different situations. Um, There's a new label for them called durable skills because they'll kind of last you for your life. So so the first thing is to think about traditional schools have focused a lot on these bodies of information and not as much on explicitly teaching these much more flexible skills, these flex skills. Um, I point to four in my book. I talk about problem solving, Uh, being adaptive, uh, being creative, and using human empathy. Uh, And there's lots and lots of different theories about other skills that are most important. What I urge is for people who teach, people who learn, (laughs) is to be thinking about what's the deliverable. Like, what do we want from all of that? Whether it's curiosity or being a lifelong learner, developing confidence. I call it agency. What we've seen in you know 50 years of, of my father's work uh, in helping people to go through life transitions is uh, if you believe you can take an action and there could be a positive outcome, I call that agency. And so what that's what you want. You want every human being to feel like they have what they need so that they can go make a positive step forward in their lives. And uh, and how that gets taught, it, the the research is. Very, very clear. Um, there's a lot of really, really good knowledge about neuroscience, human development, that all say we we need to teach people to continuous continually be curious. As you were saying, they, we can they, you can learn how to learn. Um, we need to help them to be able to collaborate with each other. We need they need to manage your own anger and your own emotions to be able to you know make sure that you're you're playing well with others. There's there's very, very clear research about all of that. What we've done, unfortunately, in our traditional institutions is we've focused really heavily on the bodies of information, which have a very short shelf life <laughs> um, and, and an increasingly shorter shelf life, and not on these more flex skills. And that's where we, we all need to focus.
0: Mm. Yeah, well broken down, and I appreciate that. Those succinct dot points, true pro. Now, how do you think we are changing the way that we are learning? Is there a change in how we're learning in the face of AI with the way yeah, information absolutely. is presented?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so first off, um, there's a variety of different contexts in which we learn. Sometimes we're curious about something and we want an answer. Sometimes we're uh, exploring what my friend John Hagel calls the mind of the explorer, and we don't have a specific outcome or goal. We just want to keep on learning or we want to follow a path. Uh, in other cases, we have um, very specific goals that we want to be able to put a box around it to be able to say we've learned a thing. And so each of those is a different context for learning. And if you think about how we do that, we've had this new thing called search now for a while. Um, and. Uh, That's helped us to be able to do a lot of that sort of exploring stuff. Um, It's not always so good for packaged information, right? And so think of some of the new artificial intelligence tools, generative AI, large language models. Think of these as essentially being better ways to be able to get information from a really large body of information to be able to filter it. Think of that as something that could be more like that coaching process not a coach, it's not, we're not going to personify it, but we'll call it a coaching process where you can say, I want to learn a thing, you get information back, and then you say, but wait a minute, tell me more about this aspect or that aspect, and it becomes more conversational, which is one of the ways that we learn. So that's a tremendous leap forward. That's a huge opportunity. Where we have to make sure we are all being very, very careful is understanding that the tools are flawed. They're not human beings. They're not perfect because no human is perfect. Um, and the the being discerning learners in using the tools is one of the most most critical ways that we can take advantage of them.
0: That's a great point, Gary, and I appreciate your insight on that. And final question: it's a new uh, a new piece for this podcast, but it is is putting the mic back in your hands and. And asking you to lay down a question that you would like to pass on to the next guest. You oh, don't know who they yeah, would be, but a question yeah. that you would like to pass on. And they predominantly impact leaders um, looking to make a change in the world, either individually or at an organizational level. That's the only context that we will give.
1: Yeah. So uh, having spent a lot of time in, in the impact arena, my wife and I uh, co-founded something called SOCAP, Social Capital Markets, which is the largest sort of you know impact business conference in the united states um i'd say uh i what i would find fascinating to know from your your next guest would be what is the one thing you have found that helps you most to motivate others
0: beautiful thank you gary appreciate it all
1: right wonderful appreciate the conversation thanks
0: i've been your host patrick Beggs, founder of third production until next time